are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Has anyone ever told you during a difficult time just to hang in there? Yeah, yeah. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Hang in there. Just hang in there. It's, it's obviously a cliche, but I, I remember the few times it actually helped. One time during my high school basketball tryouts, we were doing conditioning, and people were, no joke, vomiting, and so was I. It was like borderline child abuse. I don't know why we allowed this. But as I was hacking out my lungs from all the running and jumping, the coach, he, he came directly to me. He looked at me, and he said, Lim, I want you on my team, but only if you can hang in there for a little bit more. I was like, okay, coach. And so he did, and he encouraged me. But at the same time, I was like, are you kidding me? I'm about to faint and die. Coping with a situation that seems like it may never change is truly difficult, and yet what the coach said was right. I needed to hang in there, and brothers and sisters, the Lord God says to you, whatever it is that you are currently experiencing, the difficulties of whatever you want to call it, he says, hang in. Hang in there. Hang in there. We must hang in there. Now, advice like that, it's not, it's, it isn't powerless because we've said it so much. Actually, to the faithful, this is a true statement. So to those who are struggling or at a crossroad, God says, be patient and hang in there. Okay. Now, the first point is that we need to hang in there is by being patient because Jesus is coming. That's what the text says. It says, hang in there, be patient because the Lord is coming. Amen? The Lord is coming. Now, in case you haven't noticed, we don't exactly live in the most patient world. I remember about many years ago, maybe even close to 10 years ago, there was a family friend who worked and lived in Seoul, Korea, but had to temporarily set up base in New York City. His family lived down here in Northern Virginia, and they attended our church. The kids went to, I believe, Langley High School, and, uh, the, the, but the dad, he worked up there. And every so often, he would come down to visit his family and, of course, our church, and we would ask how, how was New York City? To which he would reply, New York City is so frustrating, David. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, I've never been to a place that runs so slow. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? They call it the city that never sleeps. How can you say that it's, how can you say that it's so slow? It doesn't make any sense. To which he snidely replied, well, someone's sleeping. He then began to tell me about the life in Korea. And at first, I was skeptical. I hadn't been there in such a long time. I mean, where could it be busier than New York City? That was answered when I stayed in Seoul, Korea, for three months. And I stayed at their downtown apartment. And there was traffic, no joke, from sunup to sundown. Traffic. I'm not talking about D.C. traffic. D.C., by the way, 66 West has become the nation's number one worst highway. Yeah, it, they legalized it. They made it into law. They said, I declare now this 66 is the worst road ever to be on. It is horrible. In fact, I remember picking up some uh, Korean uh, deacon from the, from the airport, and we got stuck in the dullest road traffic area, and I said, you know, deacon so-and-so, I apologize for this traffic. He goes, this isn't traffic. I go, what do you mean? He goes, 
because you're moving. I was like, ah, yes. But up in that downtown apartment at that person's home, I had this fantastic view of the craziness that is Seoul, Korea. So when things are not at our pace, we get impatient and frustrated. When we drive behind a slow car, we get mad, and somehow we end up believing that that person is doing it on purpose. How neurotic are we? Right? And it's not like just traffic and city life that demands quick performance. I'm sure you do too, personally. At your work, you expect certain tasks to be completed on time, if not before the deadline. We expect things at home to be in order, dinner at dinner time. All the toys put away. The garage stuff needs to be in order. I expect my home to have order as well. I expect certain things. I expect the heater to run efficiently during the winter. I expect my Wi-Fi to work at all times. We all want results right now, not tomorrow, not next week, today, right now. But even in our personal lives, when we get to a certain age and we're not, let's say, married or, or have a career, we get a bit frantic, don't we? And we dive into the first job that will take us or the first relationship that will take us. Even if the job is just shady and forces you to compromise on your ethics or your church commitments because of your impatience, you just do it. Or for those who are so desperate to be in a relationship and quickly settle down and get married and have kids and look like everyone else on your Facebook newsfeed, you open your heart and emotionally and spiritually and physically compromise in order to expedite your love life. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. And so when we hear things like this, be patient or hang in there, it sometimes sounds like a foreign language. Especially when all we're used to hearing are things like, get it done, be busy, accomplish, have a schedule, haste, all that stuff. Hanging in there, being patient just sounds so out of step with life. But that's what God is telling you and me right now. He's saying, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient because Jesus is coming. Now, this is what's so crazy about this verse. Even listening with your Christian ears, when we hear that we should be patient because Jesus is coming, it just sounds out of step. It sounds weird. It sounds impractical. It sounds almost irrelevant and so distant that it's not something for us to even consider and factor into our lives right now. It's like someone saying this. I remember a, uh, a ranger on like some documentary saying that there's geothermic activity going on in Yellowstone Park. And it says that there is a volcano, there are a massive volcano that's going to erupt. And my initial response is, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. What are we going to do? We're all going to die. It's going to be like Dante's Peak, the movie, right? It's going to be horrible. There's going to be a huge volcanic eruption that could destroy most of Middle and West America. And then the ashes will plume up into the sky and darken the days for, darken the, the sun for years to come. And what will happen? then plants will die, and if plants die, then animals die, and if animals die, then people will die. And it will be complete civil disorder, and everything will just be just chaotic, and it will be like we're living out an apocalyptic movie. But then the scientist says, oh, but it will probably happen in the next like, 10,000 years. And immediately I'm like, okay, I'm fine then. <laughs> Those future people can deal with that. That's kind of like how we react to Jesus' coming. We think, but it's been 2,000 years since Jesus left. And so we think it'll be another 2,000 years, quite possibly. 
But we can't think that way. Because unlike the volcano that will erupt maybe a few thousand years from now, Jesus, he does not give us an estimate. In fact, he doesn't give us much to figure out with. He just says that we need to be ready because he'll be here soon, it says in Revelation 22. He's going to be here soon. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is coming. The person that you asked that to, how did they respond? Were they like, or were they like, yeah. You see the Jesus who once died, then literally came back to life, then 40 days later, because he was hanging around with people, hung out with disciples, really made his presence known. So there are amazing testimonies and witnesses of his presence, of his actual resurrection. After 40 days, he then ascended into heaven where he was given dominion by God, the Father. Well, that Jesus is still alive today. And he's ruling in the things of this world right now. You know that the Christmas season is upon us. And so we'll soon, if not already, be hearing songs like, He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Well, maybe not Santa, but Jesus certainly knows. Jesus is ruling the universe right now, and he's ruling our world too. And one of these days, he's on his way. He's getting ready once he gets the green light from the Father to come back and rightfully reclaim his people and vanquish all of evil. Jesus is coming. In Acts 1.11, Jesus says that the same way he's about to leave will be the same way he's going to come back. Then Jesus tells the apostles that he'll be coming back, but with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead of Christ, dead in Christ, will rise Prophetic words like this are scattered throughout the entire scripture because the return of Christ, though you and I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, will certainly not be a surprise when it does. It won't be a surprise. And this is a fundamental truth. In fact, the return of Christ, the second advent, the second coming is part of the very definition of Christianity according to the Apostles' Creed. It reads, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. You see, as a pastor and as a fellow brother in Christ, it is my spiritual obligation to remind us all of this very fact, that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and he'll be here sooner than you think. I mean, my goodness, right after Thanksgiving, I don't know if you guys felt this way too, but the day after Thanksgiving, I looked at my phone, my phone calendar, and I said out loud, it's almost already December. Where in the world did the year go? 2015 is already almost over. Can you believe that? And then I began to cry eternally because I realized how much older I was getting, and the older I got, it seemed like the faster time went too. But you get what I'm saying. It's foolish for us to think that we have all the time in the world. It's just foolishness. And that Christ's return will never happen in our lifetime. God is reminding us, and you are being a reminder right now, there will be no surprise. Because when he comes, when you see God face to face, you can't say, but God, I didn't know. You can't say, God, I wasn't ready. There's no defense like that. Do you know what the Bible says? Do you know what the Bible is in many ways? It's a, it's a syllabus. The syllabus should be any student's best friend. Unless your teacher is really scatterbrained, your entire year or semester will almost always follow the neatly displayed schedule in your syllabus. 
You'll know when your assignments are due. You know when you have holidays. And you'll know when the big exams come up. There really is no surprise. God is saying, I am coming. My son is coming. There will be no surprise. You will not know when. But he's saying, be ready. So how does the coming of Christ help us? Jesus' return helps us because if you are his through a personal relationship, that means you know God. And if you personally know God because of Jesus, that means all the worries in your life and all the pains in your life and all the suffering and misunderstandings and injustices and poverty and brokenness and persecution and even death that believers face will ultimately and completely be reversed. Your life will be renewed with no possibility of corruption. Your spirit that is redeemed will never face the challenges of temptation and sin. Your suffering of brokenness, pain, injustice, and all the results that come from a fallen world will be snuffed out and you'll be forever, eternally, fully, completely, ultimately, joyfully restored. That day will come. That day is coming. So our Heavenly Father tells His earthly children who are all awaiting for their heavenly homes, but who are presently going through their current difficulties of life, He says to you all, be patient, for I am coming. Be patient, for my Son is coming. Amen? So how are we to be patient then? Let's get practical. And James does. He gives us three models of patience. He says, firstly, we must be patient like the farmer. How many of you guys can relate? Yeah, exactly. Now, if you recall my story this past Thanksgiving service of when I visited my, my cow-raising friend in Wisconsin, the moment I got there to the moment I left, my friend's mother would not or could not stop calling me the city slicker from D.C., she goes, oh, now a city slicker from D.C. now, don't you know? I'm like, yeah, that's, my name's David. Now it's true, I've never farmed in my life, and so this example from James to me is probably one of the most foreign concepts for me to grasp. Regardless, there's this undeniable truth here. Whether you've farmed or you're some city slicker from D.C., is that farmers know, and you know, that growing takes time. It takes time. They plant, but the sun has to shine. Not only that, it has to rain. The seed has to germinate. Then you've got to irrigate or wait for the rain to come again. Then the sun has to shine again and again and again for many days, in fact. And then the fruit will grow. Then it will ripen. Then eventually, at the right time, the harvest will come. And when the harvest comes, all the profit comes at once. You see, farmers don't work hourly and get paid hourly. No, they work and you work, and you work, and you endure, and you work, and you work, and at the end, you sell your harvest. That's when you get paid. You see, God, he knows that you don't see much progress in your life either. He knows that. He knows that raising your children sometimes seems like a fruitless task. He knows that you feel like, he knows that you feel like your spouse will never change. He knows the problems you struggle on the inside, the depression, the heartaches, the confusion that never seem to go away. But despite the hardship of your life, God, he, he calls you to the patience of the farmer to work every day, to endure every day, to keep pushing and waking up every single day to push through, 
persevere, act diligent, and continually do what's right, what is holy, what is righteous, what is obedient. And one day, God, he promises this, but one day at the right place and at the right time, the harvest will come and there will be results. One day. So he says, do not quit before the harvest comes. Don't quit before the harvest comes because there will be a day of harvest. Turn to your neighbor and say that. There will be a day of harvest. In fact, do you know when marriages start taking on a steadiness? They say it's around the 10-year mark. Do you know when you start getting the hang of your job and where you can really start innovating, leading rather than simply working to work? They say around the 10-year mark. Do you know when ministries actually start stabilizing, where relationships between pastor and members and relationship between members and division really start taking shape? At the 10-year mark. And of course, there are exceptions, but the study shows that it takes a few years to transition, then a few more years to adjust and grasp certain things, then a few more years to own it and then direct it. In terms of ministry, while it takes 10 years for things to start settling down, the unfortunate truth and recent statistics indicate that many pastors leave after the five-year mark. And in marriage, more than a third of marriages end within the five-year mark, and almost 46% end within the 10-year mark. And God, he's saying, be patient, whatever it is that you're going through. And the struggles that you're facing right now, he says, hang in there. Do not give up. Never give up. Don't walk away and, be, and just give everything up right now, he says. Be confident that God is working in every detail of his perfect purpose. And he says, do not leave before the harvest day. There are situations where you'll have no choice to give up infidelity or whatever you want to call it, but, or if you get fired, things like that. But God is reminding us that though people may fail us, though the world may fail us, though we may fail the world, he says we should never give up on him. Never give up on God. Never give up on his faithfulness. Never, never challenge God's character. Keep your faith in him. Amen? The second model of patience comes from the examples of the prophets. This illustrates when sometimes the right things don't seem to work out. In verse 10 and 11 reads, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, as a pastor, I'm always connected with other ministries, other kind of movements in, inside the, uh, the Christian circle. And so I get bombarded with emails and articles about how to have a successful ministry. And I'm sent all these emails and articles about conferences and packages that, prom that promise exponential growth and fruitful ministries and bigger and better everything. And it says, guaranteed. And then I read the prophets. And I think, well, I guess prophets like Amos or Isaiah or Jeremiah, pretty much all of them missed out on these conferences because none of them really had any success in their ministries. Or maybe it's that today some people have a faulty understanding of success. So what can we learn about these prophets despite their shaky ministry and oftentimes being completely hated by the mass? What made these prophets successful? This is what made them successful. They were right in the eyes of God even though they were unpopular. 
They were right in the eyes of God. They followed the word of God. They obeyed the word of God, even if it was unpopular. Their messages were almost widely unaccepted, and they suffered for their faithfulness. Jeremiah was considered a traitor because his message, God's message, was unpopular, and so they beat him up, and then they imprisoned him, but he remained patiently faithful. Isaiah was told from the get-go that people would not want to listen to him, that he's got nothing to offer. Those immediate discouragements were thrown his way, but guess what? He trekked on and he remained patiently faithful. Daniel was carried off as a slave at the age of 80 or so because of his unflinching loyalty to God. At the age of 80, he was thrown to the lion's den. And so for his entire life, he was never able to go back home and see his homeland, and yet he remained patiently faithful. And you want to hear about a bad marriage? Hosea, the prophet Hosea was married to a whore. She cheated on him repeatedly, repeatedly, and yet God continued to call on Hosea to love his wife even after she sold herself into prostitution, and yet Hosea remained patiently faithful. I mean, we think of prophets in like this romanticized ways, but they are people like us who struggled like us. They were weak. They wanted to be liked. They had pain too, pain that we would hate to have. They got tired. They were discouraged. They wanted to be accepted by their peers, but above all their wants and all the things they may have felt that they were owed for following God's commands, they wanted ultimately and supremely wanted to be faithful to God and do what God wanted them to patiently and faithfully do. They say, I would rather do what God wants than what the world wants. I would rather obey the word of God than the word of man. And so they endured patiently, faithfully. They hung in there. Patient endurance is what we need, brothers and sisters. Why? Because Christ is coming. And they knew that their salvation was coming too. Lastly, we can be patient like Job I want you guys to know that God hasn't forgotten you in your suffering, and especially when it seems like you're suffering for no apparent reason. Have you guys ever thought that? When you're going through something, and you're like, why? It makes absolutely no sense that I'm going through this. Verse 11 reads, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, the hardest times in life are the times when there seems to be no reason for what's happening. When things don't make sense at all, when it's impossible to see any type of good purpose is being served, when your best friends and when your parents and your advisor or even your pastors can't come up with any answers for you, when it seems like God himself has turned his back onto you, it's during those times that, that the Lord tells us to remember Job. You see, Job, he didn't understand his struggle either. And honestly, he didn't have to. And he knew that. It was enough for him to trust God because he knew God. Can you trust God because you know God? Can you trust God because you know God? Someone can say, you know what? Grace said this or did this. And I can say, uh, wrong. Because she would never say that. And she would never do that. Why? Because I know her. 
We can say the same thing when difficulties come and we have the tendency to strike our fists up in the air and say, God, why did you? No, like Job, we can say, "Uh uh-uh. I trust God because I know God. He knew God would either A, vindicate him, or that B, Job would die. But either way, it was God's choice. Now, if you want to remember a good quote, listen to Job when he confessed to God in his patient suffering. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's crazy. Even if he takes my life, I will trust you, God. Because even in the taking of my life, Father, you have a plan. That's huge. Even if I'm afflicted with pain for the rest of my life, I will trust you because you have a plan. See, Job, he didn't understand his struggle either. He lost everything. He lost all of his family except for his wife who was just nagging him. He lost his flock and his cattle. In other words, he lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. He lost his reputation and his prestige. And Job's theologically minded friends came and they tried to offer him words of advice, but they ended up just coming, sound like cute little sound bites for Job's really very hard and difficult problems. You see, Job was a mess. He was a total broken, beat up, sad mess. Now, what if God allows you to be in such a state? What would you do? What would you say? Maybe you're in that state right now. Will you remain patiently faithful? Will you trust him because you know him? Or will you wallow in self-pity and then get bitter and bitter until you convince yourself to quit, run, and compromise? But before you answer, let's look at the last part of verse 11. It reads, And you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, and merciful. Do you remember the outcome of Job? God restored Job and blessed him even more than before because God was always on his side the entire time. Now the blessings of God isn't always what you think it is. The harvest you reap may not be the overabundance that Job experienced. Job was never asking for extra blessing. He didn't say, God, you killed my five kids, so give me 10. God, you killed 200 of my cattle, now give me 400. Job wasn't even looking for answers. He was just sitting and he was just trying to be still and lean on what he knew of God and God's faithfulness. But here's the issue. We as a people, we typically do the opposite. When we lose money, we pray and we expect God to give us more money. When we lose a relationship, we pray and we expect God to give us an even better person. When we lose our jobs, we pray and we expect God to give us a better job that has a better pay with better opportunity for promotion and a way of life. Do you know why God sometimes, if not oftentimes, does not answer our prayers like that? Because he knows our hearts. He knows that our hearts aren't like, it's not like the farmer. He knows our hearts, it's not like the prophets. He knows our hearts, is not like Job. We want the things of God more than God himself. The farmer, the prophet, Job, they want God above all. They want God above all things. Can you imagine that? Job losing his children says, I I want you more than I want my children. We want to be liked and accepted by others more than accepted 
by God. We want answers that will satisfy us rather than the answers that are already revealed in Scripture because here's the kicker. Maybe the answer for your current struggles right now is for you to simply hang on and lean on God. Maybe that's the answer for whatever it is that you're going through. Maybe God is not saying, here, here's the solution, here's the answer. Maybe he's just saying this, do you trust me? Do you know who I am? Will you lean on me? And where is God's deposit in all this? Where is his, where's his collateral? Where is his confirmation email? Where is his guarantee? He says, you can trust me. You can lean on me. You can fully, patiently endure and remain in me because my son is coming back. And when he does, on that day, he will make things right. The coming of Christ will be a glorious day for his people who have been waiting patiently, enduring faithfully. But the coming of Christ will be the most dreaded and fearful day for those he has come to judge. And so the Lord says, because of who I am, and because of the guarantee of the second advent that my son is coming back again, he says, find peace in your current struggles. Because the Spirit of God is with you. He says, find hope in your circumstances because Jesus is coming soon. We need to be patient. We need to hang in there and rest upon the promises of God's words, but also rest upon the presence of God. He is here. And the Lord says, rest upon each other as well. For God has provided the church to help you and to love you and to minister to you and to serve you, but most importantly, rest upon God's amazing love for you. That Christ, who has died for you, will come again to reclaim his bride. You know, one of my, sounds weird to say, I don't say favorite movies, but a movie I really like is Princess Bride. Have you seen that? I just showed that to Grace like not too long ago. She's like, why do all the guys like this movie? And so we watched a little bit of it. <clears throat> and one thing that's really cool, if you don't know the movie, is that there was Buttercup. Yes, it's the name of a woman. And Wesley. And they were torn apart. And Wesley was confirmed dead by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And yet after all these years, what happened? He comes back fighting, fighting, pushing, enduring to be with his loving bride. As like a bride awaits for the day her groom leads her down the aisle into a life of marriage, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Father and our Holy Spirit, encourages us through his word that we too must patiently and faithfully wait for Christ to take us by the hand and lead us into our forever eternal marriage with him. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, that you are going through, as cliche as this may sound, the Lord says, hang in there. Endure. Patiently remain faithful and bank on the promises of my word and the fact that I'm coming soon for you. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God, we rest upon that very promise. And unlike our promises, your words will never fail because they are consistent with who you are. So Lord, I pray that we would be patient, that we would faithfully endure, even when it just seems so bleak and impossible and there seems like there is no light at the end of that tunnel and there's no silver lining, God, and when it just seems like all is lost, you say, in that, trust me more. And so, Lord, I want to encourage and challenge these members here. Perhaps the reason why it's so difficult for us to trust you is simply, again, because we don't know you. If you don't know you, it's because we're not spending time with you, Lord. It is a relationship, a wonderful relationship that you have given us. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you guys, if you want that assurance, that confidence, if you want to truly know our Heavenly Father, get to know his, his Son, Jesus, through his word. So let's go ahead and take a moment before our last song and and pray. If you could take a moment, even meditate on what you've just heard, to repent of any issue or obstacles that you're currently facing and where you've been kind of responding with disbelief or skepticism or perhaps you've even been questioning the faithfulness of God. God, if you really love me, you would do this for me. If you're really there, then you would answer me this way. In all the sorrows of Job and even the prophets, not once did they say that because they knew God. Maybe that's just where we're at right now in our lives. So let's go ahead and pray and seek the Lord right now. Let's pray.